Welcome everybody to this latest IFG Live event. I'm Jill Rutter, I'm a Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government. I'm actually delighted that we're putting on this event in partnership with our extremely good friends at the Arts and Humanities Research Council. Um, I don't usually have that much to do with conspiracy theories, but last year I was walking down towards uh, the Institute for Government, don't go there very often these days, on a Saturday afternoon when a woman in a striking hat and a barber jacket stopped me and asked me the way to Trafalgar Square. So I gave her directions. We're going to the demo, she said, gesturing at her husband, partner, whatever. Number 10 has been taken over by communists and they are directing our lives. We need to stand up and resist. And she asked me if I wanted to join them at Trafalgar Square. Uh, I said no and rapidly hurried off in what might only be described as the other direction. Uh, but they clearly were not the only people heading to Trafalgar Square that afternoon, as we saw on the uh, TV pictures later. That's uh, perhaps a rather mild example of the spread of misinformation, disinformation and wild conspiracy theories that we've seen over the past year perhaps lie on a spectrum which starts with the slightly dubious or hyperbolic use of statistics in a campaign, or dare I say it, even in a government press release or on the floor of the House, uh, and then ends with uh, extraordinarily odd theories. Um, not new, of course, uh, and we've seen many times, many examples over the years, for example, of companies deploying the tactics of casting doubt on science as a way of warding off government action. But now, we really want to uh, try to understand the phenomenon a bit better. Ask the extent to which this is new and different, or are we all just going a bit stir crazy in lockdown, have more time to read these things that were always going on, bubbling away under the surface anyway. And critically ask what, if anything, government or indeed the rest of us can do about it. And to do that, I'm joined by a world beating panel almost say trademark Matt Hancock. Anyway, my world beating panel today is uh, Damien Collins MP, former chair of the House of Commons Digital Culture, Media and Sport Committee, who was writing reports about this before it actually even became a pandemic. So that was back in 2019. So full marks for prescience there. Professor Peter Knight. Peter is Professor of American Studies at the University of Manchester and principal investigator on the AHRC's Infodemic Combating COVID-19 Conspiracy Theories project. So Peter will bring a lot of academic and more rigorous insights to this. My good mate, Will Moy, Chief Executive of Full Fact. Uh, Full Fact often occupies the top of the Institute for Government building there in Carlton Gardens. Uh, he's joining us virtually, of course. Will has been a doughty battler against uh, against uh, misinterpretation, miscommunication and misinformation for the last decade or so. And last but absolutely not least, Mariana Spring, specialist BBC reporter covering disinformation and social media. So that's our panel. Please remember to tweet along at hashtag IFGinfodemic and please post your questions in the chat. There's going to be, I anticipate, this is a forecast, uh, a lot of questions. So if you see someone asking a question that of course isn't quite as well put as you would have put it, but basically is asking what you might have asked, it would be great if you could give them an upvote rather than ask your own question, because that makes it easier for me because there are fewer questions to look at. And I also know 
what the audience really, really wants answered before working out their lots that are very similar. And please, please, please don't uh, don't write an essay about this. Just get to the nub of your question because it's very difficult to read essays on screen. I might just blank you out there. So let's start by trying to understand what is going on. So I'm going to go to Will. You've been knocking around this space for some time, Will. Uh, how big, how important and how new is this phenomenon? Are we all, the rest of us, just all catching up with where you and Full Fact have been for absolutely ages? Will Moy. Well, I think we're all catching up because the world is changing very fast around us when it comes to where we get our information from, what we can trust and how we're able to share it with other people. But an underlying truth remains. Bad information ruins lives. It damages people's health. It promotes hate and it hurts democracy. We see people suffering from curable diseases, including COVID, because they have been misled by false information about their health. We see false information about public health issues related to, for example, the rollout of 5G communications technology. We see terrorist attacks sometimes promoted by people who have been radicalized by false information online. And we see doubt and distrust in our democratic and electoral process undermining that and undermining participation in that. And that, I think, leads to a series of challenges, some old, some new. The first is to avoid overreaction. There are governments all around the world using the worry and fear of misinformation and disinformation as an opportunity to crack down on dissent and free speech. Our government so far has been careful to avoid that trap and we should recognise the importance of that as a starting point. And then I point to three others. Providing good information. That's harder than it's ever been because there are fewer sources of information with mass cut through than there used to be. The BBC is still by far the most important source of news in this country. But I think Facebook made it to the top three news sources, for example. And Facebook is not one experience for everybody who uses it. It's a different experience for everyone who uses it. So it's harder to get the same message to lots of people than it ever used to be. And traditional sources of authoritative information like government and academia have a harder time playing the role they used to play in society as a result. Good information is one challenge. Appropriate regulation is another challenge. We know that there are new power bases as a result of changes in technology, the internet companies being the most, but not the only prominent example. What does good regulation look like that constrains that power and makes it accountable and protects freedom of expression and democracy and when necessary, reduces harm in a proportionate way? One great example of that, Damien Collins's committee pointed out, is that our election laws were written in a pre-internet age they're now dangerously out of date. That committee called for emergency legislation before the last election. We still haven't had it, our elections are at risk. And then finally, a lot of people think about misinformation as a problem about content. Actually, it's a problem about behavior. And we need in particular to scrutinize the behavior of people in positions of power and responsibility, politicians, government, journalists, and the ease with which they can bypass traditional accountability. A, a politician never used to be able to talk to millions of people except by buying advertising, which everybody could see, or by going through journalists who could ask them awkward questions. Now you just hold your people's question time with hand-picked questions that you want to answer, avoid all the awkwardness of scrutiny, but carry on the performance of it. So we need to think about what behaviours are possible in this new world and how we continue to maintain accountability. Very good framing of the general issues there. I want to come to 
to Mariana. Mariana, you had an article celebrating, I think, your one year anniversary of uh, of looking at this uh, in the context specifically of the pandemic. Yeah, you know, does that resonate with you? What what really are we looking at? And actually, what are some of the sort of you know things that are gaining hold and and why do people believe them? Thank you so much, Jill. And yes, I think that if I that question I am asked almost 10 times a day is why do people believe this stuff and also why do they spread it? Um, and it's a very complex question to answer. Um, I started my job as the BBC's specialist disinformation reporter exactly a year ago about. Um, and I think I've learned a little bit uh, about why people believe this stuff. I by no means have all the answers. Um, one thing that I have found, and as we've all found everyone on this panel, there's been a boom in vaccine and pandemic disinformation in the past 12 months. Um, that can partly be explained by this huge thing happening, the pandemic that's been really scary. Lots of people have been stuck at home. They've been turning to social media, um, but it's more complicated than that. And I think that if we can start to understand why people fall victim to online conspiracies and disinformation, we can better understand how to report on it. And when I talk to people, I wrote for the Sunday Times uh, yesterday all about this um, and about a year of my job. And there are certain behind the scenes anecdotes that perhaps said, shed some light on this. And one of those anecdotes was um, I was at a protest uh, for BBC Panorama back in December. Uh, it was an anti-lockdown protest where there were a number of people promoting conspiracy theories about the vaccine. And I spoke to a couple of people who were there um, and they were telling me that the vaccine was part of a plan for mass genocide that was being orchestrated by Microsoft founder Bill Gates. That is uh, not true. Uh, and I was questioning the conspiracy, asking why would anyone do this? How would they manage to do it? I, I don't really understand. Um, and this man just looked me dead in the eye and he said, you clearly think that most people are good. And I fundamentally think that almost all people are bad. And I think that tells you a lot about why people believe these conspiracy theories, because the committed minority of people that spread them exploit that distrust that people have in authority uh, in the systems around them, often for legitimate reasons, because of bad experiences that they've had. And as a consequence, they're very uh, quick to believe this stuff. And once you believe one conspiracy theory, you can believe everything. One thing we've seen a lot of is pandemic disinformation, the idea that pandemic is a hoax or it was caused by 5G or that the vaccine is deliberately harmful in some way. Merging with conspiracy theories like QAnon, that's the baseless conspiracy that uh, President Trump is waging a secret war against satanic paedophiles that's come all the way over to the UK. It's actually spread across the world and different people have engaged with it in different ways. And I think it, it, there was a really interesting piece I read a couple of weeks ago that was all about how online conspiracies are very much about what people don't believe rather than what they actually do believe, that it's about um, what they don't trust as opposed to what they do. And when you can start to at least understand why people fall victim to this stuff and the structures in which they do, that's that that, that sheds light on, on what social media sites are doing or what the government are doing and questioning that, that's part of my job as well. You, you begin to get a bit of an idea. Um, and one thing I, I always highlight um, in my reporting or try to is the human impact that these conspiracy theories have. Um, this isn't just some niche internet phenomenon anymore. I'm sure everyone saw uh, the images at Capitol Hill um, and I've interviewed people across the UK and the world whose lives have been ruined, uh, who've lost their lives or whose relationships have been destroyed by online disinformation. This very much has a real world consequence and I think if we can put a human face to those victims and, and also interrogate and try and understand who's spreading this stuff and who believes it, then we perhaps go part of the way in beginning to resolve this slightly unresolvable problem.
Mariano, do we need to understand why people are spreading this stuff as well as who? I mean, are people doing it because they genuinely believe 5G masts are doing something to you? Is that where it starts or is it uh, is it a misguided theory or is it actually people with a big other agenda who are deliberately developing these and seeing what runs and what gets traction? I think that um, it's a combination of it, it's very complex. There are definitely a committed minority of people that do this for uh, ulterior motives, whether that's making money, building online followings. You know, we live in this influencer age where it's a very good thing to say uh, polarized stuff on social media and you can get quite a few followers and you can become quite a personality in a way that you might not have been able to a decade ago. Um, some people do genuinely believe this stuff. Um, and I think there's this kind of complex middle layer of people who are conned, who fall victim to conspiracy theories and become committed followers of that small minority of people who spread this stuff. There's obviously state actors. We often talk about foreign interference, but actually one thing I do often find is that um, domestic disinformation campaigns can be just if not more successful. Um, and it's very hard now often to find those bad actors because it's all such a mess online. Uh, it can be hard to work out exactly where something started. And I spend a lot of time investigating who the people are who spread this stuff. But I tend to want to focus often on the victims for fear of amplifying or perhaps making these people more important than we should, uh, because what really matters is the real world consequences it's having and understanding how this ecosystem, uh, this disinformation ecosystem functions online and perhaps that gives answers uh, to others about how this can be resolved. So Peter, does has this all been exaggerated? Is this always a phenomenon in pandemics or in when there's sort of big epoch making crises? You know, is this new? Is it just different because it spreads so quickly? So give us a bit of historic context. So conspiracy theories have a long, long history. They are Absolutely nothing new. Um, research has shown that they do occur in times of crisis and uncertainty, and there are lots of examples throughout history of that. Research also shows that actually they are very widespread. Um, um, most polls now show that a majority of people in most countries believe in at least one conspiracy theory. But also looking kind of historically, we need to recognise that um, before the 20th century, conspiracy theories were seen as a quite legitimate way of understanding the world. If you look at something like the Declaration of Independence, once you get beyond the first paragraph that we all know, it is a long kind of conspiracy rant. But from sort of the 1960s onward, conspiracy theory, in fact, the very term conspiracy theory, gains traction as a way of marking out certain beliefs as illegitimate, beyond the pale of uh, rational discourse. But what we're seeing now in the last kind of 10, 20 years is um, an undermining of that delegitimization. The conspiracy theories are now taken far more seriously by far more people, and we're seeing them being used, certainly, for example, by, by President Trump. I mean, in the past, the idea was it was only people on the margins of society who would turn to conspiracy theories. During the pandemic, um, conspiracy belief has certainly become more visible. I've been studying conspiracy theories for kind of, you know, um, uh, 25 years, but it's only in the last year that I've had so many inquiries from 
uh, journalists and others about the problem of conspiracy theories. So I think there's there's a kind of uh, uh, there's a consciousness about the problem that there hasn't been in the past, and um, but they're kind of the, the data in terms of belief isn't suggesting that there is uh, uh, a catastrophic crisis. You know, I, I don't think we should be unnecessarily alarmist. So if you take something like the Kennedy assassination, um, belief in the past has been up to about 75% in the US and the UK. It's probably about 50% now. But something like most of the conspiracy theories about the pandemic are running in the range of kind of 10 to 20%. So for example, um, in the UK, about 20% of people believe that the virus was deliberately created and spread. That's, you know, that's a significant and worrying number, but it's not um, the kind of uh, catastrophic levels that I've been seeing in some reports. Now, what I think has really changed in the last 10 to 20 years, and it's not just as a result of the rise of social media, but social media is playing a significant role in increasing the speed and the range of the spread. But the thing that has really begun to change is a form of conspiracism that sees um, all forms of authorities and elites as illegitimate. So science, the very idea of kind of objective truth, um, democratic government, governance, and the mainstream media. So I think increasingly conspiracy theories are um, undermining the very ground rules of discourse. Right, that's, uh, that's really interesting. I want to come finally in this, uh, finally to Damien. Damien, you were looking at this back in 2019. You had sort of various warnings. You also looked at, at different countries. Is the, uh, is the UK, Anglo-Saxon countries particularly prone to this or is this playing out everywhere similarly? And have you been surprised at what's happened in the pandemic? Thank you. This is a problem that affects the whole world. Um, and actually, if you know, if you go in, probably unsurprisingly, you go into Eastern Europe, the Baltic states in particular, you'll see, you know, Russian disinformation is much more, much more aggressive in countries like that. You know, we saw, we've, you know, we've seen it play out right across Europe in election periods. You know, people are concerned with Germany having probably quite a close election uh, this year that we may see a big problem around disinformation there. If you look at European research, looking at anti-vaccine conspiracy theories, probably see that um, it was in France that there was the biggest, you know, it's been the highest numbers of people polled saying that they wouldn't take the vaccine when it was available. And uh, this, is, this is stuff that was being tracked uh, really from the start of the pandemic in March uh, last year. And what you saw worryingly it was in a lot of countries that as the pandemic went on, trust in the vaccine, if and when it came, declined. Um, and in France, it was almost about half of people at one point saying they wouldn't take it. So you have to say that disinformation is playing a role in shaping people's opinions about something new. You know, we saw it manifestly with things like the, uh, as been mentioned before, people setting fire to 5G phone masts. And as you know, Mariana referred to, you know, the, what was effectively an attempted insurrection in Washington in January, you know, is evidence of the power of these movements as well. Um, there's been examples of, you know, particularly disinformation campaigns uh, being produced in Venezuela, targeting the Spanish-speaking Spanish population around the world. 
Um, but going back to going back to Washington, when you think from, from, from election night in Washington up to the 6th of January, 75% of people that voted Republican were persuaded that the election had been stolen from them. And that was, and that's that, that one, that's when we talking about disinformation, not being like one particular story posted on one particular day, but a drumbeat of information over a sustained period of time that ultimately radicalizes people to behave in a particular way, uh, in a way that was you know, dangerous to, to democracy and society and dangerous to the five people who lost their lives at the Capitol that day as well. We, I think, took that incredibly seriously as we've taken the impact of COVID disinformation seriously in the last 12 months. But if you go elsewhere around the world, this is by no means unusual. I mean, be it the organisation of genocide in Myanmar, of, you know, of lynchings and riots in India, um, the, it, social media has played a role in organising and mobilising people to commit those acts. We, and as Will touched on this earlier on, I mean, we, you know, in this country today, about 35% of people get news each week from Facebook. Social media channels are not just places where people go to chat with their friends and play games uh, and share, share pictures. It's, it's principally, for many people, their gateway into, into the world. Uh, the way they see issues and, and society, I think, is different. And I think what has changed, I think, since we did that, our inquiry and produced our report in 2019 to where we are today, is we see that less in a sort of political climate, being, is this about the referendum or is this about Donald Trump or is it about this election or that election? And say, no, actually, what this is, is over a sustained period of time, I think uh, a tool that is being used to divide communities, to radicalise people in their opinions, to create a sense of distrust in all government, all media, all public institutions, and to leave people in a position where they just simply don't know what to believe anymore. And in an environment like that, if what you're principally seeing is a drift of news and information through social media that points you in a particular direction, and as also that experience will be different for different people, is it surprising in that situation people start to believe the things they're seeing most of? What they actually wrongly believe is what everyone is talking about. So when we look at the bigger picture and say, well, you know, what should or could governments do about this? Um, I think if we do nothing about it, this problem will get worse. And it'll be the very institutions that hold our nation together uh, that will that will suffer. Uh, and therefore, I think it's in, it's imperative that we do. And the other thing I'd say, it's fine, I'm sure we'll get on to talking about it, is that you know, whilst there is a role for making sure the news and the government get accurate, reliable information out there to people, uh, to making sure people are aware of the clues that help them identify disinformation as well. One of the reasons this is a problem today is that social media companies, particularly companies like Facebook, have a business model based on engagement. Uh, they're principally interested in holding people's attention for as long as possible because then they make more money out of them by selling more ads against them. And I think in the past they've been too blind as to what the impact of some of that attention grabbing information is. And whilst people have free speech rights, they don't have the right to be amplified. They don't have the right to see Facebook's recommendation tools promote their theories and their views to other people that may be likely uh, to believe them. Uh, and a tool that was really designed to sell music and films and you know, games that people enjoy playing to people that like something similar. When you use that to share quite radical political ideas, it can, it can do a lot of damage. And part of the, part of the solution to this problem is how we make the tech companies more responsible for what they effectively make money out of indirectly, what they allow to go viral to hold people's, hold people's attention. So Damien, our top rated question, which I'm going to just put to you and mm. the others can uh, signal if they dissent um, from Devon Viralia is, is the advent and the scale of social media, is it based, does that just basically mean we're now in the game of mitigation, uh, misinformation rather than eliminating it? I think probably say we could never eliminate misinformation entirely, but uh, 
when you I can't, I mean, it's, as, as Peter said, you know, it's always been with us. You know? But if, if the worst someone could do was stand at Hyde Park Corner and shout, you know, then um, then you know it was it, its impact was limited. If what if what if what someone can do though is through a you know a professionally managed organised network of groups and accounts and pages and channels, effectively broadcast those opinions to millions of people directly, and then through that engagement have social media platforms recommend those opinions to to many millions more. Mm. It's a scale, it's it's a it's a challenge on a different scale. So there are there, there is not one magic bullet that solves this problem. It is about you know literacy and engagement, getting reliable information out there. But this issue about amplification, which is not a freedom of speech issue, people don't have the right to be amplified, saying actually we need to have more responsibility over the way in which we allow certain messages to be amplified through social media and recognise that there are there are clever people that have realised how you can game this system uh, and, and get it out there. And, you know, that that may be the Russian state. It was certainly the case in the, the Stop the Steal campaign in America at the end of last year. It was a, it was a live example of that being organised by, by an elected politician. Great. I'm assuming no one's going to dissent from that. Um, we've got a question from Paul Wernick. Oh, well, you can come in. I'm going to give you first dibs on this and come back on anything like that. Okay. He's asking, does the problem of gullibility start in schools? Would a brief introduction to philosophy of science, maybe some basic statistics or a bit of critical reasoning, um, actually, actually help Mariana's people sort of be a bit more resistant to some of this? Uh, Will, I know Full Fact has done some stuff. You've done some stuff on uh, Newsbeat and things like that, gone into schools. You know, is it really us that's the problem? I think goes your behaviour culture point. Yes, and uh, just to uh, pick up on what Damien was saying quickly first, it is the case now that there's a larger scale of uh, the number of us who can reach lots of people with misinformation. But it's worth saying this isn't the first time people have been able to reach lots of people, millions of people with misinformation. It just used to be the exclusive preserve of the rich. The Leveson Inquiry's undis undisputed factual findings, including undisputed by the lawyers representing the newspaper industry, were the sections of the press routinely put their political agenda above accuracy as a priority. We have lived in a country with massive levels of misinformation reaching millions of people for at least decades. And it's worth being realistic about the fact that that is part of a democracy um, and in particular, the nature of the media in Britain makes it a particularly prominent part of our democracy. Every time the power of communication is democratised, people are worried about it being misused. And rightly, that's a real challenge we have to address. But the idea that it hasn't been misused yet <laughs> is not going to work for me. On the education thing, I think it's fascinating. I've always wondered what people think teachers do if it's not trying to teach people to think for themselves. I think both my parents are teachers, I should declare an interest. I think they would be offended, their colleagues would be offended if it was suggested that they expected kids to leave their schools not being equipped to judge things for themselves, reason about unfamiliar evidence and all the rest. So I do think that education has a role to play here. I do think that we need to make sure we educate people to the novel risks and the techniques that can help people be um, prevent themselves being misled. But we also need to recognise that some of the evidence is that older people are much more vulnerable to online misinformation than younger people, less familiar with the territory mm. and so on. It's not quite as straightforward as saying let's deal with things in schools mm. and we cannot sit the country down for a national sort of Blue Peter episode <laughs> where we teach everybody how to uh, look at things we see online. Peter, 
any evidence that actually there are sort of gambits around education um, or raising cultural sensibilities? I don't know, is, do arts humanities have something to, to add to what might actually be an effective sort of population level uh, intervention here? Yeah, there's a couple of things here. Um, various groups have been looking at interventions, education, uh, digital media literacy and so on. And there's, you know, there is some evidence that those things work. But we also know that actually quite a lot of conspiracy theorists, in effect, have taught themselves media literacy. And they have learned to be sceptical of the mainstream media. They've learned that, um, you know, newspapers can lie. And that's why they are so resistant to any kind of uh, mainstream messaging. I think that makes the kind of problem harder because it's not simply a case of, oh, here's a bunch of people who are really uh, stupid and misinformed. And if only we could educate them, they'll, they'll come out fine. But I think what we need to think about is actually both um, the supply uh, side of misinformation um, that others have talked about here. And I think, you know, there are many things that um, we need to do and the various um, new forms of legislation that are being proposed in the UK and the EU and elsewhere are going to go some way towards that. But we need to think about the demand side. As, as Mariana was saying, you know, why, why is it that people are tempted to believe in these things? And the thing that we mustn't do is just dismiss large swathes of the population as stupid or gullible or paranoid. We need to kind of think about some of those underlying drivers of distrust. Why is it there has been a rise in populist distrust of various forms of authority over the last 10, 20 years? Very interesting. Um, Mariana, we've got quite a lot of questions here about the, uh, you know, what the role of the BBC could be. Maybe the BBC should be more critical when it uh, invites people in. I have places to say not from the Institute for Government, which gets uh, full, full marks for transparency, but think tanks that maybe are a bit untransparent about their funding. And where should we, and where do we go if you need, this is a question from Paul Estee at Cambridge, uh, if they detect hostile state involvement, who should call that out? Mariana, what's the BBC's role? As Will said, the sort of, you know, trusted broadcaster, or at least if not trusted, at least the major source of information for lots of people. So I, I guess I should begin this by saying what I what I will and can comment on is what I do, which is um, investigating and reporting on the impact of online disinformation and conspiracies and the human impact it has. A lot of those other things mentioned are well above my pay grade. But um, on the front of what the BBC does, there's actually a brilliant conference that's running this week. Uh, it's called uh, Trust in News uh, and it's running today, tomorrow and on Wednesday. And it's totally free and it's uh, run by the BBC, but it's also invited a number of fact checkers and reporters and journalists across the disinformation uh, conspiracy beat um, and just across journalism more broadly to understand what's being done to tackle online disinformation. So that's one, one resource that might be helpful. Um, there's two facets really to the work that the BBC does when it comes to to, to tackling disinformation. Um, one of those is is 
good, clear, accurate information and rigorous reporting. And I know that everyone I work with does their utmost uh, to, to do that. Um, and then there's this team we have, which um, I'm a part of, of a mixture of fact checkers, uh, disinformation experts, um, and myself and, and editors, um, who work to do a variety of different things. That includes fact checking, everything from uh, myths being shared online to fact checking what politicians say. Um, uh, that's BBC Reality Check, if people have heard of that before. Uh, BBC Monitoring often track, um, particularly foreign interference campaigns, but more broadly where bad information is traveling online. Um, and my job predominantly is reporting across TV, radio and online about the human impact disinformation has, interviewing people affected, uh, investigating uh, where a particular post has come from and understanding uh, who it's impacted. So um, I think that, and that was something something I spoke about in my Sunday Times article, um, the BBC plays a huge role um, in doing all of those things. Um, I also think that the BBC does play a big role in social media literacy. It's something I've done a lot of during the pandemic, um, often for Newsround or for uh, Radio 4 as well, not just for younger audiences, in discussing how is best uh, to spot disinformation. And I think that uh, while the onus isn't just on individuals, um, there are things that individuals can do to try and either spot disinformation for themselves um, and to avoid it, to avoid being conned by it, but also to help others in their lives, whether it's friends or family who might have fallen down that rabbit hole. Um, aside from that, there's the biggest structural uh, issue that, that we talk about. Um, I spend a lot of time reporting on uh, social media sites and what they are or aren't doing and the government and what they are or aren't doing. And that speaks to the wider structural problem. But in the short term, there are things that we can all do to try and spot disinformation uh, and to stop it spreading. So we've done citizens, uh, educated or otherwise. We've done our broadcasters, but lots of questions coming in about what actually governments can do. We've got an online harms white paper, I think, knocking around. I don't think it's yet turned into legislation. She looks nervously. Legislation uh, coming soon, allegedly. Coming soon, okay. Uh, that's hopefully good information. Um, question, um, Stephanie Carpetas has said, how do you regulate for online harm and who do you hold responsible? The platforms, the people spreading the information. So Damien, uh, what actually can government do about this? So one of the reasons this is so difficult is unlike in traditional media, um, people don't often put their names to disinformation. And when they do, obviously you can go after an individual or an organisation for maliciously spreading you know, false information that could cause harm to others. But if people use the anonymity of social media to do that, then it becomes a lot harder. And what we have to end is the idea that somehow companies like Facebook and Twitter are neutral platforms where actually you know that they don't create the content and therefore they're not responsible for that content. Where they make money out of that content by selling advertising against it or, or using their recommendation tools to promote it to other people, then they have a responsibility for that content. Um, they are playing an editorial role in, in curating that content on their platforms. And we should say that they have, a, what, the, what the online harms uh, bill when it comes later this year is intended to set out is the idea that they have a duty of care to their users and a duty of care to their users means acting against harmful content. Now some of that content is already illegal, um, some of that content is already in breach of their own community guidelines and we want them therefore to be more effective at, at removing it. Um, that should be a judgment based not just on content moderation but also on recommendation and amplification uh, as well. There will be some areas too where we want them to take action on content that is 
you know, is um, harmful but not necessarily illegal. That could be that could be you know cyberbullying could be a, you know, an example example of that. Um, we might take we could take a view that we think rampant racist abuse, particularly of people in the in the public eye and sports stars, is something the companies should be taking more responsibility over. So the idea is that Ofcom will have a role as as a as a media regulator in assessing whether the companies are meeting the duty of care standards set by Parliament, and um, as part of that, they would have something that no one has at the moment, which is the right to go in and audit and inspect and have access to data and information from within social media companies to see how they're complying and what they're doing and make recommendations on ways they could improve that. So that's the process that we've set out here. Uh, the, and the key, the key bit is ending this idea that the platforms are just, you know, totally independent, free from liability uh, in this space. In Europe, the Digital Services Act that was published by the European Commission in December. It's, it says that it's, it's a similar process. It's different in some details, but but again, it has the idea of some responsibility from the companies. Um, and then, you know, in in America, I think it will be very interesting to see what happens in America. Um, Bruce Reed, the new Deputy White House Chief of Staff, he wrote an article last year, which again said that he thought that you know the companies are responsible for the bits of social media where they make money and moderating content in those spaces. So amplification, ad placement falls part of that too. Um, and there are other appointments to the new administration who, again, in the past have been very critical of the responsibilities of the big tech platform. So I think we're seeing around the world now different governments looking at different mechanisms they can put in place. I think what they have in common is the idea of saying the is the idea that the concept of the platform being neutral um, and having no responsibility has got to come to an end. Then being held to account for the decisions they make and certainly an intervention coming when they fail to act against known sources of harmful content in an efficient way, um, that, that is going to be a key part of this. And I think over the next couple of years, we will see you know, different countries legislating to achieve that. And Damien, in this, um, we've had some questions about the sort of potential conflict with free speech or where actually there is scope for a reasonable debate about some things. Some things aren't completely cut and dried. Um, you know, I've just been looking on Twitter where some friends of mine who work on vaping, a lot of, you know, the UK takes one view on whether it's uh, sensible to uh, have people switch from cigarettes to vaping. Other governments take a different view. They think actually it's potentially bad and stuff like that. It's, you know, it's a very contested area. How, who judges what's harmful? And is there a danger that uh, in trying to sort of, you know, screen out all harmful content, we sort of you know, lose that ability to think a bit differently, look at problems in a different way. It seems to me it's you know, borderline. Are we delegating that to Mark Zuckerberg? Are we delegating it to Oliver Dowden or Melanie Dawes, who's the chief executive of Ofcom? Quite who who gets to say where that borderline is uh, is drawn? Well, you, you know, we're not going to have a situation where um, you know, you can remove all content that is disputed you know, or, or considered harmful by, by, by some people. What you can have is a situation, is, is an environment where the most egregious forms of you know, harmful information um, are acted on efficiently and that um, we can have a debate around the way in which some of the amplification tools work. I mean, I think we should be concerned about the fact that, you know, we've seen, you know, we have now record, you know, record levels of um, you know, hate crimes being committed at the moment. We have high levels of um, recorded um, self-harm by pre-teens uh, in, in UK hospitals. You know, we have, I think, a very concerning rise in, um, you know, in medical conspiracy theories on the back of the pandemic. And these are having an impact on society. So I think it's reasonable to say in those situations, 
do we want the companies to be more effective at dealing with the most harmful forms of content? It absolutely shouldn't be just down to Mark Zuckerberg to determine if and when uh, they intervene. And therefore, it's right that we should have some external standards. Even in America, with the with the freedom of speech, First Amendment rights, you know, you don't, the Supreme Court has said, you know, defined in the past that someone that is giving giving a credible incitement to somebody to commit an illegal act, that, that is not covered by freedom of speech. You know, that is that is there are no freedom of speech rights to do that. And so there is there is always absolute cases where you can intervene because that speech is likely to cause you know, imminent illegality and harm to people. And indeed, actually, in the last 12 months, I think we've seen some of the social media companies act against some of the wilder conspiracy theories and anti-COVID, anti-vaccine conspiracy theories as well. But we need more effective standards enforced and we need some sort of monitoring about of what's actually going on. And that's really what the, the legislation brings in. Rather than what we have at the moment is a system which is self-policed by the tech platforms and their assessment of how well they've done at that is based on self-reported data and information with no no ability to check and i think you know, that's what we need these these better standards and ultimately the the idea that there is some liability uh, at the end of the day you know, for the tech companies if they get these uh, judgment calls wrong but i think we have to see it as the the most you know the most dangerous forms of disinformation are what's likely to be legislated for by parliaments in terms of where we got action and the other thing I'd say is look into, look, take, you know, take a step into the near future um, you know, when when sort of deep fake content, totally fabricated films you know, and recordings and images can be produced even more cheaply, even more readily and to a level which makes it almost impossible, probably actually impossible to distinguish between uh, that and the real thing. When that content, say, being spread you know, maliciously, totally fabricated content during an election or during a public health emergency, the idea that in that situation we couldn't go to a Facebook or a Twitter and say, we want you to remove this content. We want you to act against this content, which has been proven demonstrably to be to be false. And they can say, well, actually, we don't have to. What sort of position would we be in at that point? You know, um, and I don't think we'd accept that in any other area of the media or any other area of public life or industry or business or anything else. And we need to be acting now, not only to deal with the worst offences today, but to protect ourselves from the very real possibility of this technology being abused in ways we can barely comprehend in the near future. Will, do you think there's anything to be worried about in this? Is it easy to draw the draw the line and who gets to judge? I think there's a huge amount to be worried about here. I completely agree with Damien that the internet companies need to take far more responsibility for the choices they make and that responsibility needs to be held to account transparently. But having agreed with that, let's talk about how difficult it is and actually how easy it is to overstep the mark here. You know, that question of if something's proven to be wrong and it's harmful, you wouldn't in any other area of life have any problem with getting it taken down. Well, if you go to a newspaper and tell them that, I think that is not the case. If you go to a publisher of books or a printing press and tell them that, that is not the case. The price of living in an open society has been people talking absolute twaddle and sometimes harmful twaddle. And we have to decide where that balance lies. And I think what's really difficult online is doing this in practice. Leave aside the philosophy of it for a second, kind of the lines of principle that need to be drawn through hard democratic transparent debate. Think about it in practice. The regulation of the internet companies when it comes to content that is shared on those companies' platforms is the regulation of all of us and what we can share and what we can see. What's getting regulated is internet users, not just internet companies. And the way we're being regulated in practice is not 
how we are regulated when we try to say something in real life and we are taken to court and we have lawyers arguing over it and four different levels of appeal so that something can say, for example, in legislation without reasonable excuse and that meaning can be debated and applied in a particular situation. The way we're going to be regulated is by artificial intelligence algorithms. And what we know about them is they're wrong a significant minority of the time. So even something that is 95%, which would be a pretty miraculous achievement for AI in this area, it's going to be wrong 5% of the time, which is the volume we're talking about at internet scale is a simply massive amount of stuff. And in the pandemic context, all of the political pressure has been on taking down too much, not too little. All of the political pressure has been remove health misinformation and all of the downside risk for the internet companies is leaving any up that turns out to be misinformation and can be pointed out to them. And actually there hasn't been the countervailing thing of are you, are you taking down too much? Are you uh, reducing people's ability to have a free and open conversation about the pandemic? We need to think really hard about the innovative necessary improvised reaction to the pandemic and the precedence it has set and where we bring democratic accountability into that relationship. Where, for example, Oliver Dowden proudly summoned the internet companies to his office to tell them there was too much 5G misinformation online and they should do something about it. Now that's a remarkable thing for a government minister to do and off they went to do something about it and the proportion of the population seeing 5G misinformation fell dramatically in the next 20 weeks. Well that tells you something extremely interesting about where power lies both in the internet companies and in government but not notice not in a democratically elected parliament anywhere in that chain of events. So how do you deal with enforcement that cannot be perfect, cannot be carefully considered. How do you design rules for imperfect enforcement by machines at internet scale? We are going to deal with some very messy compromises in this area. So I completely agree with Damien about the need for responsibility from the internet companies, about the need for transparent accountability. Now let's move on to the conversation about all the messy compromises involved in how you do that. So Peter, what does past experience uh tell us about where and how we strike those messy compromises that Will was just talking about. Do we know what can be effective? Because there's no point compromising if we're going to end up with something that doesn't work. So we might as well compromise around things that do work. One of the things we know about conspiracy theorists is that they increasingly distrust experts, authorities, governments, and the media and therefore they are hardly going to be satisfied if they suddenly find themselves on the wrong side of a censorship fight as they would frame it. So I think we need to be kind of really alert to the way um, this struggle is going to be perceived by the very people that we're trying to rule out of the conversation and I think that trying to therefore understand the root causes what's driving this distrust is probably a better long-term bet than removing individual pieces of conversation, uh, uh, um, uh, misinformation. Yes, you know, I'm fully, uh, you know, I'm fully in support of the idea that um, uh, you can't cry fire in a crowded theatre or, or that there are reasons for legislating against that. But I would agree with Will that we need accountability and transparency 
not just on the part of the social media companies, but on parts of governments and regulators that are going to be interfering. Because we need to understand that actually the, this needs to be a public an ongoing debate about the things that we consider acceptable and unacceptable. So if you take Germany, for example, has uh, decided that certain forms of hate speech, including Holocaust denial, are completely outlawed and have therefore um, insisted that social media companies uh, obey that law to, you know, to great effect. That is part of a national conversation that has gone in different ways over the years. But I think we need to kind of recognise that we're going to have to have those kinds of conversations on an ongoing basis. And there needs to be part of a kind of participatory uh, conversation uh, within countries, but also between countries in terms of what we're prepared to consider acceptable or unacceptable. That's interesting. I'm going to come on to this. Uh, you're mentioning, Peter, in that the role of government and when we've been tweeting this event out maybe because of the sort of people that follow the institute for government on uh, on twitter we get quite a few comments back saying but the government itself by its actions is putting out you know if not deliberate uh, uh disinformation is that your worst it's at least some sort of you know misleading statistics we have them demystified for us on a weekly basis by Tim Harford and David Spiegelhalter in more or less. Um, Mary Dijewski in the chat is saying, well, what about, you know, the government's dodgy dossier on the Iraq war? Didn't that undermine trust in politicians and people? And even in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the actions of EU regulators uh, you could argue at least cast some doubt on trust in efficacy of vaccines, a slightly panicky reaction, maybe legitimate, maybe not, but um, panicky reaction, which has reduced trust in a very harmful way. But, you know, maybe on balance of harm, if you just said, well, don't report this bizarre Norwegian cluster of, uh, of CVST. Um, so what happens? How does government need to change to do this or is that not an important part and do we need different ground rules about government behavior mariana do you want to say anything about that and you're allowed to plead the fifth as a bbc correspondent there and say no thanks and i'll pass it straight on to someone else um i think that uh, i mean what i'd add on this would be probably kind of similar to the discussion that's just been had about the online online harms bill um i spent a lot of time reporting on that, uh, challenging and questioning uh, that. I recently interviewed Oliver Dowden for an investigation I did into the impact of the anti-vaccine movement online um, and questioned delays and uh, harm that um, has come as a consequence of those delays possibly, um, particularly having interviewed a number of people who've been put off the jab um, or scared by viral disin uh, disinformation or harmed in some way otherwise. Um, but it's not so much my realm of expertise to comment on the disinformation beyond what I investigate online. So if you want someone else to answer that, I'm very happy <laughs> for you to. Okay. Damien, what about government? Does government need to be particularly, uh, particularly careful and uh, hold itself to account before it starts to uh, lay down the law to others here? Yes, of course, governments need to be responsible for what they say, but they have jeopardy 
In the same way, the editor of a news program or the published editor of a newspaper has jeopardy. If they get it wrong, then people can take action against them, either by sacking them, taking them to court, you know, voting against them. You know, people, you know, people take issue with things that people say. Political debate is often two people using perfectly legitimate facts to have a totally different view of the same event from someone else, you know, and that's political debate. Some people watch that and say, I can't even believe that person's allowed to go on the BBC and even say it, you know, sort of, and the director general should stop them even being broadcast. But that's what political debate is. We have to see this as a different sort of, of problem, which is the idea of people's worldview being changed and shaped by a constant, as I said earlier, drumbeat of, of disinformation that seeks to incite people to act in a particular way. It's not about the answer to a question or a particular paper or dossier that's been produced to which the person that produced it holds their name. Often the people that, that create these campaigns and this, these disinformation movements are hidden from view and therefore you don't, they have, no, they have no public jeopardy because they can't be held to account for what they do. And the companies that, that, that help them disseminate that content um, don't, can't be held to account for it either because they say we didn't produce it. So in this gap, you know, we've seen the problems of the last year really, I think, bring this home, the sort of real world problems it can create and the way it changes people's behaviour and then therefore the need to do something about it. What I would say though is I think the right, the, the tech companies have been right to say that actually deplatforming someone for spreading you know, harmful information could still be applied to a politician as well, as it was to Donald Trump, as it has been applied to President Bolsonaro in um, in Brazil as it has been applied to the government of Myanmar and so actually governments shouldn't get a free pass if they themselves are inciting dangerous acts uh, from their citizens. And you've, um, Damien, in your in your select committee report you mentioned, mentioned will mention changes to electoral law that you thought might be necessary to uh, ensure that we had you know free, fair and well-informed elections. What exactly did you, were you worried about there? Well some really basic things. So as every, anyone who's ever taken part in an election will know, when you put a leaflet through someone's door, on it by law, it has to say who's paid for that leaflet and which candidate it's there to promote. There is no legal requirement for that information to be included in an advert on social media. You know, so there are some basic things around transparency, who is saying what, who's paying for what, who's directing content at who. Those are some certain basic things that, you know, that should be there and we need to update our electoral law for. There are some other more complex areas which we didn't necessarily get into in detail in the report, but I think were very much part of the debate held in America uh, in the last year. And that's around the nature of micro-targeting of advertising on social media, something you, you can't do in, in more traditional broadcast media. So on, on YouTube, there were, there were more restrictions put in place around the sort of data you could use to target an advert. In Facebook, not. You can do it in a very granular way based on you know, people's emotional profile rather than just their political views. And I think there are legitimate questions as to whether that whether the technology that was designed to sell sell a pair of shoes should be used to sell a political idea. Well, do you agree? We've got some people uh, in the chat questioning the degree of jeopardy that politicians feel when they misuse information. Do you think jeopardy is enough or do we need uh, do we need more rules there? Well, I think it's up to all, us, all of us as voters to make it enough jeopardy. Um, and that's ultimately our job in a democracy to hold our politicians to account. But if we look at what happens in practice, Four out of five of us assume that politicians can't be telling the truth most of the time. Um, 
if you've already assumed that someone is lying, you've sort of given them an incentive to live down to those low expectations. So I think we have a real problem with the level of blind cynicism we have in public life uh, as, a, as a bad incentive for political behaviour. A full fact what we find actually is that politicians get things right a lot of the time and also when they get things wrong and we tell them often they want to correct the record. So the blind cynicism we see is often unjustified but equally we do see powerful disinformation coming from governments and coming from people who want to form governments that needs to be held to account effectively. You don't do that by assuming they're all liars, you do that by targeting actual failure to live up to good standards. So here's some examples of what we should be doing. Firstly, we should have a parliamentary inquiry into government communications. It's a hugely complicated, potentially politicised area. It's changing massively. We need an inquiry into what oversight is done to stop it being politicised. Secondly, backbench MPs like Mr Collins should have a mechanism to correct the record in the House of Commons when they make a mistake. At the moment, only ministers can put a correction into Hansard. An MP, an ordinary MP, has to stand up on their hind feet in some unrelated proceeding to try and put a correction on the record that is completely detached from the original mistake. One small step that can demonstrate a sincere commitment to building trust with the public. And then thirdly, speaking of corrections, in the 10 times we have asked the current prime minister to correct something that he has erroneously said, we have not had a substantive response once. So I think parliamentarians should think about how they maintain the rules in the House of Commons that expect ministers to correct the record when they um, give inaccurate information to the House of Commons. It's those systems and our expectations of each other of what's going to let us have proper informed democratic debate. Peter, I want to give you the last word. Um, we're doing this event in partnership with the Arts and Humanities Research Council. So I wonder if you might just tell us a bit about what your particular project is hoping to uh, produce as potential outputs, inputs into the debate and what the arts and humanities more generally can contribute to uh, to this particular debate. Thanks very much, Jill. So there's a lot of work being done by social scientists uh, in terms of survey work on the percentage of people who believe in particular conspiracy theories and also on the mechanics of spread on, on social media. What we're trying to do is combine some of that big data work with a more granular approach to understanding on the ground by looking in um, community groups on Facebook and YouTube and so on, how people actually come to engage with the uh, uh, conspiracy theories that are being spread. So it's trying to um, bring that kind of wider historical, cultural, social understanding of why in society at the moment people are increasingly attracted to this way of understanding the world. And what we're trying to produce out of it is both the kind of, you know, a better understanding of how conspiracy theories work, but we hope that is also going to then inform some of the debate about what we do about it in terms of both uh, education, but also uh, government policy with the, the debates at the moment about the online harms bill. Okay, that's a great point to end. I think uh, clearly the next, uh, next point of reference for all all our excellent panellists is going to be the online harms bill, as Will said, due out later this year. We hope we see that and we clearly need a sort of big national conversation about what, what do we want to see that, what do we need to do to protect ourselves, um, where should some of those lines be drawn and who should be 
drawing them and meanwhile uh, all develop our own faculties for a degree of critical thinking. So that's been a great discussion. Thank you very much to Peter Knight, Will Moy, Damien Collins and Mariana Spring. Uh, just to remind everybody else watching, thank you very much for, for watching this event. Uh, you'll be able to re-watch it again on our YouTube channel, listen on IFG Live. But there's another event we did last week with the Arts and Humanities Research Council on the specific contributions that they could make to better understanding the pandemic and some of its consequences. So do catch up with that. That was chaired by my colleague Alice Lilly. So please watch out for that one. Anyway, thank you all and watch out for more events and thank you and good afternoon. Bye everybody.